Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As a church family, we are currently on a journey straight through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We are studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this powerful New Testament book. And after a a couple weeks of break for Easter and baptism and the Lord's Supper, tonight we are jumping back into 1 Peter chapter 3. And tonight's text is very, very practical. Peter is going to address a subject that I believe Every Jesus follower has thought about. But specifically for those who follow Jesus in a city like Las Vegas, I believe that the subject Peter is going to address tonight is a constant point of concern. Here's the big question that Peter is going to address for us tonight. How do I live out my faith In Christ, in a world that rejects Him. You could say it this way How do I live faithfully in a faithless world? I want to remind you how Peter began this book. He began this book by addressing the believers he was writing to as scattered. Aliens. He referred to them socially as aliens, as outcasts, those who had been pushed away by society. And geographically, he says that they're scattered. They're not in big groups anywhere, they're scattered throughout that part of the world. Scattered aliens. We live in a city where 92% of the people do not believe what we believe. They don't worship the one that we worship. They don't love the one that we love. So I believe this question that Peter's going to address tonight must be clarified for the believers in Las Vegas in a very clear, biblical way. A Christian writer named David Burnett really framed it up this way, and I think this really sets us on a course tonight. That's that's very wise. Here's what he says. He says, as the culture continues to shift, followers of Christ are being forced to address new facets of a very old challenge. How to be faithful to Scripture in an, an increasingly hostile environment. We must think, speak, and act in a way That's informed by the gospel and the word of God. This means being okay or rather expecting that our actions 
will not be met with applause. If you have a Bible tonight, look with me in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 13. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to put this up on the screen for you so that you can read along with us as we read our text for this evening. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. Peter writes this. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I believe in this text, Peter gives us four practical instructions of how you and I can live out our faith in Christ in the midst of a world that rejects Christ. Here's the first practical instruction. It's found in verses 13 and 14. Here's the first instruction. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. I want to let that land on us tonight. I want, I want it to land on you as it relates to your neighborhood. Your relationships at your workplace. Your school. Your circle of influence. Your family. You have nothing to fear. As I began reading verses 13 and 14 over the past week, there was something about them that kind of landed on me a little weird. He begins that section by talking about harm and suffering. And he ends that section with phrases such as, You are blessed. Don't be intimidated. Don't be troubled. And if you just think about that from a worldly perspective, it's really hard to get your head around. How do you start a thought by talking about harm and suffering and end the thought by talking about being blessed, not being intimidated, and not being troubled? Well, here's the reality. There are numerous teachings of Jesus that are radical, that from a worldly perspective don't make sense, but in the context of the kingdom of God, totally makes sense. For example... Jesus told us, if you want to save your life, lose it. If you really want to live, deny yourself. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, serve the most. 
radical teachings of Jesus that from a worldly standpoint don't necessarily make sense. What Peter starts with here in verses 13 and 14 is exactly that. You see, Peter knew the radical teachings of Jesus. And that's why he wrote verses 13 and 14 with confidence. Because here's what he understood. Here's the point. He understood that the stresses and struggles of this world do not represent the last word in the life of a believer. I want to read that again. Because this may be a statement you need to write down. And put on your dashboard or your mirror or your kitchen table or your desk at work. For those days when you're just struggling. When you're questioning some things. I want you to remember this point. The stresses and struggles of this world. Do not represent the last word in the life of a believer. That's why Peter could say with confidence. You have Nothing to fear. I want you to do something with me tonight. Just in your heart and in your mind, I want you to pull out your list of some of the fears that you have. As you follow Jesus in a city that does not follow Jesus, as you live out your faith in Christ in a world that rejects Him, what are those things deep down in your heart that if you were honest, you would say, this, this honestly scares me. Maybe on your list is rejection. Maybe on your list is disrespect. Maybe on your list is death. Maybe on your list is embarrassment. Whatever that is, I want you to just process it and get it in the front of your heart and your mind for a moment. Because interestingly enough, in Romans chapter 8, Paul pulls out his list of all the things that may intimidate a Christian and think in some capacity could disrupt our relationship with God and our fellowship with God and in some way cause us to be afraid. He starts in verse 31 with a great statement in Romans 8. He said, if God is for us, who is against us? He says, when you really take to heart the reality that the God of heaven, the one who spoke and it was, is for you. He's on your side. Who's against you? He goes on. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he begins the list. He said, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He said, for I am convinced, and he starts another list, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I hope those verses do for you tonight. I hope that they take your attention off whatever it is that you're afraid of. And they set your heart on the God who is for you. The God who is on your side. The God who passionately desires to come to your rescue every moment 
of every day. The first practical instruction that we see here from Peter is this. You have nothing to fear. Here's the second practical instruction that we see from Peter. You should live surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. You should live surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Look at the first phrase in verse 15. He says, listen, don't be afraid, but sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Now, the focus of this verse is not that Christ is Lord. That's established. That's done. Jesus is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. The focus of the first phrase phrase here in verse 15 is Paul telling these believers, he's Lord, and you should acknowledge him that way. You should treat him that way. The instruction is, I am to always set apart and honor the lordship of Christ. He should be treated altogether different than everyone else and everything else in my life. The word Lord is a very common word, especially in a church context. It's in the songs that we sing. It's in the prayers that we pray. It's in the scripture that we're studying tonight. But what are some other words that could be used for the word Lord that can just help us get a better grasp on its meaning tonight? Here are a couple of other words we could use. We could use the word king, chief, leader, ruler, controller, master, commander, boss, captain. I think a very clear example of submitting to a higher authority, submitting to lordship, is found in the context of the military. I was talking with some people in our church who are currently in the military, and I asked them this question. I said, when a higher-ranking official walks into the presence of soldiers, what happens? Whether they're in a field or they're in a room, when a higher-ranking official walks into the presence of soldiers, what takes place? Well, you may know the answer. Everyone snaps to attention. And so I asked a couple guys in our church Talk me through that. What's going on inside of the heart of a soldier when a higher ranking official walks in the room? I want you to listen to this text that one of the gentlemen said. He said, the primary reason we come to attention is because it is a posture submissively showing honor to the one to whom honor is due. Also, there is an implicit expectation That whatever is spoken by the higher ranking official will be of significant importance. You've all seen movies or you can relate with this. But a higher ranking official walks in the room. The soldier is at attention. And there is nothing on planet earth that carries more weight than the instruction that soldier is about to receive from the higher ranking official. I want you to pull that over into the context of our relationship with God. The Bible here is saying that we're not just to be at attention to his lordship at certain moments. We are to set apart Christ as Lord. Meaning every moment of every day, we are to be at attention, 
honoring and acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. And nothing should carry more weight in our lives than the words and commands of Jesus. That's this idea of lordship. And Peter's saying here, listen, every moment of every day, you are to yield your life. You are to surrender your life to the ruler, to the king, to your Lord. When someone is your Lord, there's no negotiating. There's no talking back. There's only one response to whatever your Lord may say, and it's this. Yes. Yes. You may have heard it said before, but God does not give suggestions. He gives commands. I read a, a, a statement in my quiet time this week from Henry Blackaby that I think really captures the, the essence of this reality of lordship. He said, every time you pray, you must be aware that if God answers your prayer... And reveals his will to you. It will immediately require you to reorient your life. That's lordship. That's living surrendered to the lordship of Christ. That at any moment, at any time during the day. He may impress on us or speak to us in some way. And we must immediately reorient our lives around what he says. That just goes with lordship. Peter says he's to be treated altogether different. He's to be viewed in a way that is different than everything else and everyone else in your life. He is to be Lord and you are to live at attention, always honoring and acknowledging his lordship. The reality that he is the ruler over your life. Here's the third practical instruction that we see here from Peter. You should know why you believe what you believe. If we're going to live out our faith in Christ in a world that rejects him, we must know why we believe what we believe. Read on in verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What's he saying here? What's he communicating to us as Jesus followers? Well, one of the things he's making very clear is this, that when someone approaches you or me and they say, why do you have such a hope in Jesus? What is it that has you so convinced that he is your life, your joy, your hope, and the one that you're living for? In that moment, for us to say, well, I just do. Peter's saying, that's not good enough. That doesn't work. That's not going to show them a solid witness of the gospel that God will use in their life to draw them into a relationship with him. As you talk to different people and you ask them the question, why do you believe what you believe? You get a lot of answers. For some people, they may trace it back to feeling. And they'll say, it seems right or it makes sense to me. For other people, they'll trace back why they believe what they believe to experience. And they would say, I tried it and it worked for me. Others, they trace it back to tradition. 
They would just say, hey, I was raised that way. Unfortunately, for those answers and many, many more, people are fooling themselves in thinking they are standing on a solid foundation of authority that usually involves the way they feel or their perspective. But I want us to understand this tonight. As Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, and he says, you must know why you believe what you believe. Any other foundation other than the Bible is quicksand. The only stable foundation that we have, that we can stand upon, that we can rest in and have confidence in, is the truth of Scripture. The New American Commentary said it this way. The truth of the gospel is a public truth and can be defended in a public way. This does not mean, of course, that every Christian is to be a highly skilled apologist for the faith. It does mean that every believer should grasp the essentials of the faith and should have the ability to explain to others why they think the Christian faith is true. For every person in this room who says, I'm a Jesus follower, you should be able to clearly and biblically give a defense to someone else for the hope that is within you. Now, I know even as I say that, for some people, there's, there's quick intimidation. And you think, well, I, don't, I haven't read all the books, or I don't know all the language, or I don't have this degree or that degree. I want you to hear me say this tonight. If you can understand the sophistication of the menu at Starbucks, you can learn doctrine and theology and the foundations of our faith. The question is not can you, the question is will you. It's not a matter of ability, it's a matter of priority. Will you give the time and the emotion and the energy to pursue intimacy with God in such a way that you can understand these foundational truths that are the very basis for our faith as believers? That's the question. But Paul goes on. He not only says that we're to have something to share that is clear and biblical. He says there's a way in which we are to share it. He uses two words. The first word he uses is the word gentleness. The word gentleness means humility. Not in the sense of weakness, but in the sense of not being dominant or overbearing. It's the same attitude that Paul wrote with in Ephesians chapter 4 where he said, Speak the truth in love. It's the defining characteristic of Jesus when he was here on the earth physically that allowed him to share the truth with people, yet them not feel condemned by him but loved by him. That's the first word here that he uses. We are to relate to others as we defend the hope that is within us with an attitude of humility and gentleness. Here's the second word that he uses. He uses the word reverence. The word reverence means devotion to God, deep regard for his word, and respect of the person that is listening. Let me summarize that for you in a statement. As a Jesus follower, I must know what I believe, why I believe it, and be ready 
to humbly communicate it with others. The last part of that statement is extremely significant. Because you and I can know all the doctrine. We can know all the theology. But arrogance does not make anything look more attractive. And for some of us, me included, our arrogance is a lid. It's a limiting factor on our influence in the kingdom of God. Peter knew that we would struggle with it, so he closes out that section of this passage by saying, listen, as you share all those things, as you passionately defend the hope that is within you, do so with gentleness and with reverence. Because we can continue to use big spiritual words and answer questions that no one is asking, or we can passionately live our lives in humility and answer the questions that all the people are asking who don't have a relationship with God. Does it work and is it true? Peter's instruction is that we must know why we believe what we believe. Here's the fourth and final instruction that Peter gives in these verses. You should live consistent with what you say you believe. Not only should we know why we believe what we believe, but we should live consistent with what we say we believe. Look at the first phrase in verse 16. He says, and keep a good conscience. Three times in this book, Peter uses that word conscience. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means that when it comes to what I say and the way I live, I should not have things in my life that I'm trying to cover up. That there should be a consistency with what comes out of my mouth and what is demonstrated in my life. And there should be nothing that's stored back in a closet somewhere that I'm trying to hide from the people around me. Proverbs chapter 10 speaks to this. It says, People with integrity walk safely, but those who follow a crooked path will be exposed. Here's the point. Integrity implies there is a sameness between who I am inwardly and what I do outwardly. He's saying if you are following Jesus and you want to you make a difference in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, there needs to be a sameness about your life, not a gap. That what you say and the way you live are different. There shouldn't be a gap. There should be a sameness. There should be integrity in your life. I love what Ed Stetzer said. He said, words are cheap. Integrity is when words and deeds align. So in light of that, I want to ask you a question. Just to help us all evaluate this instruction tonight. Does who you are on the outside match who you are on the inside. Another way to say that would be this. Is there anything in your life right now that you're hiding? And nobody can answer that tonight but you. But here's what I want you to know. If even as I said that, God brought something to your heart 
That's the Holy Spirit of God convicting you tonight and telling you, I want you to deal with this. I want you to go to that hiding place and I want you to bring whatever it is into the light and I want you to deal with it. Because I want there to be a sameness between what you say and the way that you live. It's a strong challenge. Peter concludes this passage in verse 16. He says, And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He's basically saying this. Live in such a way that you will not compromise your pursuit of Jesus and His righteousness regardless of the repercussions. And what you can know in your heart of hearts as that takes place is that where there is sameness, there is safety. God says that clearly in His Word. I think when it comes to subjects like this and talking about living on our faith in a world that rejects Him, it's very easy for us to talk about how dark the darkness is. We talk about different pockets of our society and how bad things are and how dark things are and how certain people need to change. Well, I want you to know this. In, in this time, when Peter was writing this passage, he knew how dark the darkness was. Yet he chooses in order to teach believers how to live faithfully in a faithless world. He chose to challenge us not to just talk about how dark the darkness is. He chose to address the Jesus followers. Those whom Jesus said are the light of the world, the people of God, the church. So as we transition to a time of response, I want to ask you four questions in light of these instructions that Peter gives us that hopefully will land on us in a way that will make us more like Jesus. Here's my first question. What are you afraid of tonight? What is it as you think about living out your faith in Christ in a dark world, what is it that you're scared of? And maybe tonight, as some did this morning, you would for the very first time be honest about that and bring that to God and submit it to Him and acknowledge the biblical principle by faith that because you are a child of God, you have nothing to fear. Second question tonight. Are you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Are you living your life in such a way that you are constantly at attention, honoring and acknowledging the fact that He's the Master, that He's the Lord, that He's the boss, that He's the one who's in charge? Or do you find yourself selfishly talking back or trying to negotiate rather than responding with, Yes, Lord. Third question. Do you know why you believe what you believe? If you were to be challenged this week by someone who doesn't know Christ 
and they were to ask you, why do you have such a hope in Jesus? Could you clearly, biblically, and humbly articulate for them the reason for the hope that is within you? And lastly tonight, is there a sameness between what you say and the way that you live? Or is there a gap? Maybe tonight you need to be honest about some stuff and open up some closet doors that are in your heart and for the first time in a long time bring some stuff out into the light and say, Lord, because I want to make a difference, because I want my fellowship to be right with you, because I want there to be a sameness about my life, I don't want to hide this stuff anymore. Because then and only then, when we're honest in those four areas, in those four questions, will we truly be able to live out our faith in Christ in a world that rejects Him.